0: Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Peter, chapter 1. We are reading verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. "...who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... Things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. That's not going to do. I know it's May and I know that's a low tempo month, but these are really good news, these things that we've just read. So I'm going to give you a chance to do that. And you've all been a bit sleepy this morning. I about stopped in the middle of one of the hymns, but I decided to spare you the embarrassment. So let's try that again. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. And Father, we do gather in the midst of your spirit and your word, and we ask that you would give us a thankfulness deep in our souls for all that has been done for us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We look to your word this morning that is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light to our path that leads us into wide places and sets us at liberty. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak, for your servants are here and we are listening. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Viktor Frankl, has a young psycholo- psychiatrist, he was young and successful. Growing up in Nazi Germany, he was imprisoned along with his entire family during the 1940s. He continued his psychiatric practice while still imprisoned. And he was one of the few to actually survive the concentration camp. After liberation, he completed his famous autobiography and work of psychology entitled Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, Frankl explores why some prisoners were able to endure the difficulties and some were not, why some gave up. Listen carefully to what he writes. Whenever there was an opportunity for it, I had to give them a why, an aim for their lives in order to strengthen them to bear the terrible how of their existence. Woe to him who saw no more sense in his life, no aim, no purpose, and therefore no point in carrying on. He was soon lost. And though Frankel is writing about the extreme conditions of the concentration camps, He ends up founding an entire school of psychology in which he takes these observations and applies them to all human beings. That when any one of us loses a sense of aim or purpose in the midst of the difficulties and sufferings, the pains, the trials, and the troubles that we all experience in life, we are soon lost that we are soon lost if we do not have a way of integrating and understanding and framing all of that. And this is precisely what Peter provides for us in verses three through 12 of chapter one. What he offers to us is a way for us to frame and a way to understand, a way to bring all of the trouble and the trial that we experience in life into our faith and to have that present before God, to know how to understand it. Because Peter does write to a church in another time, then and there. But we share in the same complexities that that church inside of the first century lived in. They had the complexities of being exiles. That is that they were homeless inside of the society in which they lived. They lived in a world that didn't share their beliefs, didn't share their values, didn't share their priorities. And they found that there was tension inside of that. And yet they also lived in a broken and a fallen world, a world that's weary and wounded by all the sin that's been introduced into it and all the devastating consequences of that. There were disappointments and sufferings, frailties, betrayals, and grief. They lived with all that, and we do too. And so Peter's word is not to a historical church then and there, it's a word to the church today, here and now, that offers us a way through the sadness and the sorrow, the trials and the trouble that we all experience. And so the question for us is how? How do we bear up under all of that? What does Peter say, and is it a good word? And though it's a communion Sunday, there are five things here. <laughs> yes, five that we have to talk about. Peter gives us one very long run-on sentence, and I wish it were easier to codify it than five, but we'll do so quickly. How do we endure this? First thing that Peter points to is that we need a firm grasp on our hope. Follow with me in verses 3 through 5, 1 through excuse me, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You'll notice that Peter attributes our salvation, our being born again to the mercy of God. And he says that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what Peter is drawing us into is that this new life we have in front of God is because we are united to Jesus. And since Jesus is up from the dead, that his life has now even permeated the present world and has brought you into the experience of new life. And he says, this is a living hope. It's important to capture that phrase. What does it mean that we have a living hope? Because the living hope points to a person. The living hope points to the reality that Jesus Christ in his body, not in a spirit, not as a ghost, is up from the dead and sitting at God's right hand. And this is why it's a living, abiding hope. Because see, our hope, it is not in a set of philosophical propositions. Our hope is not in a set of meditative exercises that can make us more mindful. Our hope is not in a set of moral rules that help us to conduct ourselves well. No, our hope is in a person. It is in the accomplishment of that person. It is in the great victory of Jesus Christ that when he goes to the cross and he suffers the pains of sin, and then he goes down into death under the curse of that sin, he then breaks the controlling power of sin when he rises from the dead. And we have a living hope that sin doesn't get the last word in this life, that sin and death have been triumphed over. They've been crushed, defeated, and destroyed. And for the Christian, in the middle of life's troubles, we have to have a hope outside of ourselves. We have to have a hope that's not part of the fallen creation, something that will endure, something that has triumph, something that has been victorious. And this is the first direction that Peter points us to, is that we need a firm grasp that our hope is alive because Jesus Christ is up from the dead and he is the victorious one. Now the second thing that Peter points us to is that we also need a clear vision of the future. You'll see as he forwards his prayer that he says that we have been born again to a living hope and then also he adds a second piece in verse four to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And where Peter directs us here is that there is an inheritance that God has reserved and is keeping for you. You. And he drives that home with these three words in which he explains that that inheritance is imperishable, it is undefiled, and unfading. And what Peter is pressing onto us is that this inheritance that God has for us, that he's holding for us in the heavenly places, it is untouched by death. It is unstained by evil, and it's also unimpaired by time. That is, it's eternal, and it's pure, and it's right, and it's good. And God is keeping that for you in heaven. But we need to note something here about that future inheritance, because God is keeping it in heaven, but your inheritance is not heaven. But rather, Peter points to a future day, and he uses salvation in the future tense. He does say that we have salvation in the present through Jesus Christ, but he also explains that there's a future installment to come. Something that we have an entitlement to today, but something that has not yet been revealed is the language he uses. That our Lord Jesus will return and he'll come in judgment and purification of the world. And this is the great future inheritance of the Christian that our Lord Jesus will come to God's creation and he'll renew it and restore it, that he'll raise dead bodies, that all who place their trust in Jesus, that they will experience the resurrection powers of Jesus in their physical bodies and the entire creation will be renewed. Peter will argue this later in his letter as Paul does in Romans 8, but this is the great inheritance that is in front of us. And that inheritance is untouched by death. It is unstained by evil. It is unimpaired by time. It's being kept for you, and it will be revealed on the great and final day. And for the Christian, in the middle of life's trial and trouble, it's very important to have that future properly dialed in. Paul tells us that it's a future that no mind can imagine. And yet God is also inviting you in your imagination to think of a world that's free from the stain of sin, to think of your character free from the evil that resides in our own hearts, to think of human society and relationships that are not marred by the darkness of sin and malice, to think of harmony of human beings, and their existence and the environment around them. This is the full-orbed salvation that God will bring to a weary and wounded and broken and busted world. That's what he's doing, and that is your future. And that future has a certain power and potency to it in the middle of our present hardships. The third thing that Peter points us to, though, is that we need to appreciate the goal of all this tension. If you follow with me in verses seven and eight. Excuse me, beginning in verse six. It says, in this, speaking of that future hope, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what Peter offers to us here is the beginning of an understanding of what the purpose of the difficulties we experience in life are and especially the difficulties that we experience in conflict with the society around us that doesn't agree with our fundamental beliefs and convictions and priorities. He explains that that difficulty is like a refining fire. And if you're familiar with the ancient world, this was a common metaphor in imagery in which things were purified in high heat, And the dross was burned off and the pure thing was left behind. And Peter brings us into that imagery that through trials and through trouble, God refines our faith and that it is purified and it's strengthened and it grows and it endures on the other side. That this is one of the many purposes of God in the midst of all of our difficulties is that he refines, purifies, and cleanses our faith. And it's also, to be honest, one of the most difficult things in the middle of our trials to appreciate. Several years ago as a young minister, I was in the midst of one of these trials as a young man without a lot of capacity for how to understand and appreciate those trials. Certainly I had a head full of knowledge about how that trial was supposed to work, but my experience was not yet to catch up with that head knowledge. In the middle of the difficulty in experiencing things inside the church that I had hoped never to see, I began to experience some doubts. An ordained minister of the gospel beginning to experience doubts, was it even true? I sat down with one of my mentors and he asked me, he said, well Chuck, now that you've been seasoned a little bit. What are you going to do with it? And I told him, I'm not sure. I don't know. It's created all kinds of uncertainty. There's disappointment. There's anger. And then he very powerfully and pointedly responded to me. He said, Chuck, you know, here's the thing you're gonna be no good to anyone if your faith never gets tested. If you can't endure this little test, then your faith is gonna be no good to anyone because people in your congregation are gonna go through much more than what you're experiencing here. And so, if you can't experience this, you need to get out now. You've met my friend, Tim Russell. He's very direct with me and it's a gift. And friends, it was true that I wasn't appreciating the goal of the conflict, that I wasn't seeing that part of God's great purpose in the evil thing that I had encountered that was not good, that in that evil thing, God had a good purpose and God was asking me to trust him He was asking me to turn away from my anger and my malice that wanted to make things right and to exercise my own wrath. He was asking me to turn away from all of that and to trust him that he would handle his church and he would handle the circumstances and situations as he always does. But he wanted me to trust him for his good purposes in my life with this thing because he had something good for me in it. And this is how our God works through our difficulties. And he asks us to submit ourselves to him, to appreciate the goal of of the troubles and the trials, of the sadness and the sorrow, that God is taking it and working it for his good purposes. Fourth thing that Peter points us to is that we need a good understanding also of our privileges If you follow along in verse 10 through 12, particularly looking in verse 12, Peter turns at the close of this very long prayer to speak of the Old Testament and how the prophets of old were looking forward to the sufferings of Christ. He says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And here Peter takes us in two directions. He takes us back historically and says, the prophets were searching diligently To know and understand the times in which the Messiah, the appointed one, was going to come and to deliver God's people. They were looking forward to that. And they saw it in murky ways. They saw it in shadows. They saw it in sketches. And Peter says that they were serving you who now live on the other side of the arrival of that Messiah that we don't live with the shadows and the sketches. Rather, we live with the manifest reality. And we have the preaching of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what Peter is arguing is two things here. He's saying historically now, we who are alive today in the church live with great advantage. That we have this wonderful privilege of hearing the gospel preached. And though we do not see Jesus, We can love him because the Holy Spirit is active among us. But then we're not only privileged historically, but we're also privileged cosmically. You notice what he says about the angels. They long to look into these things. And so not are you privileged over those who lived before the coming of Christ, you're privileged over even the angels. As we hear the good news preached, as we celebrate all that God has done, And this is demanding for us because we can become so accustomed to the things of the gospel. It becomes another fact, it becomes another commitment, it becomes another thing in the schedule. But Peter here wants to arouse us and awaken us from a slumber in which we see in the resurrection of Jesus Christ all the weariness of the world solved and undone. And we see all of our hopes answered. We see all of our pains given some orientation and aim that God one day is going to renew the world through Jesus Christ and he's given us the down payment in his resurrection. And we need to appreciate and ask God to help us appreciate again and again, week by week and day by day, that privilege. I was speaking with a friend this week. We were sharing breakfast together. And he is self-confessed person who's struggled with gratitude in his past. And yet he's also the most thankful and encouraging person I know in my present life. And he was sharing for me, with me, one of the disciplines that moved him into that. And every morning, He takes time during his devotion to write down the things in which he's thankful for. Very simple exercise. Writes down things about his wife that he's thankful for. Writes down things about the church that he's thankful for. Writes down things in his life that he's thankful for. Very simple discipline. But it's to direct him to the privileges that he has. And friends, this is the direction of all of our lives need to press and to be pushed Because we're privileged. And in those privileges, we don't want to become entitled and numb to it all, but remembering it all. The final thing that Peter presses on us here about how we endure in the midst of all this is that we need to be transformed. You'll notice that in verses 6 and 8, Peter uses the word rejoice twice. Peter's pointing us to the fact that in the middle of our trouble and our trial, that there is the possibility of rejoicing. And that can be very difficult because our pains are real. He doesn't smooth over and whitewash the pains that we endure. He doesn't say put on a happy face. But rather he puts the strong antidote of the gospel, of the healing of the world through the resurrection of Jesus Christ before us. And he points us in this rejoicing to the broader context of verses 3 through 12 because you'll note that this is all a prayer. In the Jewish world, it's called a eulogy. It's something of a mix of a doxology and a thanksgiving. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's announcing God's praise and he's giving thanks to God for the new birth that he's been brought into and all the church shares in that we now have this living hope and we now have this inheritance in front of us. And he's setting for us here the transformation that must happen to each one of us. That in this experience of new birth, that our trouble and trial is to give way to a greater reality. And it's from that greater reality of grace and mercy undeserved that God has freely poured out on us and given us the great hope of the healing of all things, that then thanksgiving and praise and doxology springs. Because sin doesn't have the last word in this world. Death doesn't have the last word. Tragedy doesn't have the last word. And so sin, death, tragedy, and sadness also shouldn't be our first word. The first and the last word in which the Christian has the opportunity to share in, in the midst of all of our difficulty, is the praise and the thanksgiving of God for what he's accomplished in Jesus. And this is the shift, the transformation that God is working in all of our lives and for us to be conscious and aware. This is the direction he would push us and press us, that we move in this way, that the first and the last word of our lives is not to grouse, it's not to move into self-pity, it's not to get lost in that conundrum. Even those emotions can be very helpful and purposeful and also even appropriate in very difficult moments of life but that God would then move us into thanksgiving and appreciating his wisdom in all of these things, that the first and the last word of our lives is thanksgiving for grace. And that's how Peter would orient us today, to the great trouble, to the trials, to the temptations, to the sorrow, to the grief that each one of us carries the burdens that are uniquely yours, the burdens that are uniquely mine, that he would orient us all to the grace of God given in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have that living hope, that inheritance. Set yourself upon it. Let's pray. Father, we recognize the great difficulties in which we live. We know that the world is not as it was intended to be, that it's marred by sin, sin in which we have participated, but yet sin from which we have been redeemed. And we long for the great day, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, where what is kept in heaven for us will finally be revealed and all things restored and renewed. Renew us in our perspective in the midst of our pain and our trouble. Be tender with us and gentle. Comfort those who grieve. Encourage the faint. Build us up and direct us to all that is ours in Jesus Christ, we need it. And we thank you God, that you preserve us by the power of faith and it is in faith this morning that we come. It is in faith that we bring our prayers and our supplications to you. You freely invite us to do so in obedience to your command. And so hear us as we pray. And Father, we do ask for your blessing on all the ends of the earth. May the peoples praise you. May all the ends of the earth hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and may they rejoice in the great hope of resurrection from the dead, and the forgiveness of sins. We particularly pray for our ministry partner, Hernando Sainz, as he works with our denominational agency to recruit and train Hispanic gospel ministers. Lord, we ask that you give him great impact in doing so. Lord, we remember that Jesus tells us that the fields are white with harvest and that we are to beseech him to send out laborers into the harvest and so send them out. Bless Hernando's ministry. And would the Hispanic peoples of North America, would they offer thanks and praise as churches are planted, as the church grows in great number among them, Provide all that Hernando needs, grant him the resources, and raise up these labors to great effect. And Father, this morning we also remember those who are sick and who are suffering in our midst. We ask that you would grant them the comforts that we've even spoken of this morning, that you console their hearts. We also pray that you would heal those in body and soul who are afflicted. And so we remember Beverly Quine, we pray for our brother Branson Bishop, we pray for Hector Harima, we pray for our brother Jack Breedy, we pray for Jay Kirk, and we also pray for Debbie Shaw. God come and grant relief, grant perspective. Give comfort through the words of the gospel in the power of your spirit as only you can. And Father, we do pray for the leaders of our nation, our presidents, the houses of Congress. We pray for the judges of our Supreme Court. And God, we ask that you would give them wisdom, that they would lead us in righteousness and justice. We pray that you give the church wisdom in navigating the complications of our own present moment. You instruct us to live peaceful and quiet lives, that we learn how to do good in the midst of a society that does not agree with us. And so help us. We need direction from you. And we ask God that we would live those peaceable lives and we'd have wisdom from you about what it means to be salt and light. And Lord, we also pray this morning for the great project in front of us, seven months that lie ahead, to be displaced from this home that we've had for many years. We're thankful for it. We're grateful for all of those who gave sacrificially to make this place happen in which we gather week by week. And Lord, we commit our needs to you and ask that you continue to provide and to give that as we establish a new home here, as we renovate, as we look to the future, that you would provide every resource we need, and that in seven months, we'll return from the Ramada Inn with rejoicing. The great things that you've done on our behalf. And may you set up and establish the ministry here at Christ Church for multiple generations to come as a result of what we do here over these next months. Bless us, O God, meet all of our needs and transition as we enter into life at the Ramada. Grant us patience and love with one another and provide for us in unusual and surprising ways. Lord, these are our prayers and concerns this morning. You know all the ones that go unspoken. Hear those as well. These things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus,